Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. What's becoming apparent is it's not easy to diversify an economy and change your culture and investment. And secondly, actually, if you want to get away from oil, you need oil to fund the getaway from oil. Stay tuned for the wide-ranging observations of one of the most sought-after experts on energy and geopolitics, Pulitzer Prize winner Daniel Juergen. Do stay with us. Full Disclosure airs on NPR One, Spotify, and on Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Follow the conversation on Twitter and Facebook at Full D Radio. Joining me from Washington, D.C., Pulitzer Prize winner Daniel Jurgen. The new book is called The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. How are you, sir? Fine, thank you, and glad to join you today. It's great to have you on the show. Fortune Magazine called Daniel Jurgen one of the planet's foremost thinkers about energy and its implications. Time Magazine, for its part, uh, remarked, if there's one man whose opinion matters more than any other on global energy markets, it is Daniel Jurgen. I have to ask you, uh, we are, would you would you qualify 2020 as an energy crisis year? Because certainly when this pandemic hit, we were seeing distorted headlines like tankers unable to offload their supplies. We saw one spot price uh, people were paying people to take oil off their hands. Uh, we suddenly saw Exxon kicked off the Dow Jones Industrial Index. The unthinkable Exxon Mobil, uh, its dividend is in question. Are we in an energy crisis? Uh, I think so, but of a kind that's never occurred before, for sure. But, you know, and the tankers have this wonderful picture in the new map of all these tankers lined up off the coast of Los Angeles, just unable to unload their oil because there was no place to store it because uh, demand had dropped so much. So this is, uh, uh, this is a uh, COVID crisis and there's been no precedent for it. Now, the shale revolution, that kind of snuck up on us after the, the last financial crisis, 2008 and 2009. And in reading the book, you know, I'd love for you to explain to our, our listeners the kind of the tipping point where the United States went from being beholden to these uh, foreign powers, many of them hostile, at $140 a barrel crude, to suddenly realizing it's sitting on an ocean, becoming potentially the world's largest producer of crude oil. And 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 I read something that North Dakota is now larger than the smallest member of OPEC. Yeah, North Dakota produces much more oil than, uh, than Venezuela, which has the world's largest oil reserves. So it's a huge change. I think if you went back to 2008, the U.S. was importing 60% of its oil. And the only question seemed to be how much more oil would we import? And then the shale revolution in oil took off. And once that did, I would say it was about 2015, uh, about 2015 when the realization began to really dawn that this was not just a sort of incremental change, but this was a big change and it was actually going to change the world oil market. In fact, I would say it was even earlier because in 20, at the end of 2014 is when Saudi Arabia pulled the plug on OPEC deals and the price of oil began its collapse back then. And that was, I think, in, I think that it was at that point it was becoming that shale was a disrupt, a global disruptive technology. Now, the idea is that there, we're, we're, these are actually not lakes of uninterrupted oil under the United States, under these ancient, ancient plains across the, you know, the, the, the middle part of the country where, you know, at the peak of the shale boom, you saw unemployment, I think, at 2% or 3%. McDonald's was offering bizarre bonuses just to get people to work in service sector jobs. Uh, how how was this stuff there and the geologists didn't seem to give it much shrift for the longest time? And then the technology progressed in a way that you could drill not just down by a mile, but then horizontally and, and in between pebbles. Well, the answer is a combination of technology and perseverance gave us the shale revolution. The textbook said, well, the oil's there, it's, it's, it's trapped, but it's trapped in very dense rock. There's no way to liberate it and get it to flow. And there was one particular guy in Texas named George Mitchell, who just, he needed to find more, actually this was oil and natural gas uh, that was trapped. He, he just became convinced, he'd read an article that maybe you could get it out. And it took almost two decades of effort, well over a decade and a half, to actually prove the technology and then another few years to really prove that it really worked. And it was this combination of two technologies, what's called hydraulic fracturing, otherwise known as fracking, and uh, being able to drill a mile horizontally two miles under the earth that brought those two together and uh, showed that the textbooks were wrong and overturned the conventional wisdom and changed the global oil market and changed the position of the United States in the world. 
Now, what this has thrown off, if I understand it correctly, it initially caused this huge glut of natural gas because it's a byproduct of drilling for oil, shale oil, whatever it is that... Uh, you. In a normal world, you would have both kind of move in lockstep with one another. If there's a demand for BTUs of energy, if it goes up, if it goes down. But uh, uh, if I understand it correctly, in that when you're drilling for oil, you end up throwing off oceans of natural gas as well. And uh, that isn't exactly immediately a substitute product. There, there are many difficulties inherent. Right. Well, actually, the, the, the pioneer, George Mitchell, was actually looking for natural gas because he had a contract to supply Chicago with a substantial part of its natural gas and his conventional fields were running out. So the first breakthrough on shale was actually natural gas. Then people said, but it can't work for oil because the oil molecules are bigger and they can't pass through this very dense rock. And this um, guy named Mark Papo, who's another entrepreneur and a, and a geologist, a, a petroleum engineer, said, well, let's find out how big is an oil molecule. And no one actually knew how big an oil molecule molecule and they figured out that it would work for oil too so the first the first wave was natural gas then it was oil and then as you brought more oil out as you say you brought natural gas out as a byproduct to, together because they often coexist now you talk about manufacturing in the book this has caused a, a, a renaissance in manufacturing in the heartland with with all this proximity to cheap natural gas uh, you know being thrown off in the kind of the shale, the shale patch, but it's it's also caused a revolution, an interim revolution in power generation, where coal uh, really doesn't have a chance in terms of of competing with. I mean, put green considerations and carbon considerations aside, natural gas burning plants are kind of the industry standard right now. If you're going to open up a power plant, you're going to do it with this feedstock. Yeah, yeah. Natural gas has really, because it's now super abundant and cheap, has displaced coal, which had been kind of the base load for our electricity generation. Coal had provided 50% of our electricity, you know, not so long ago. But natural gas has really taken market share away. Coal's share is declining. And that's one big reason that U.S. CO2 emissions are back to the levels that they were decades ago, even though our economy has doubled because natural gas puts out less CO2 in the air than, than coal. So natural gas has become really big, and it's, today it's really natural gas competing with wind and solar for new installations. You know, if I'm at a cocktail party with Daniel Jurgen, put put COVID aside, or if I'm in an if I'm in an elevator with you in Washington D.C., oh, Daniel Jurgen, or a green room at C-SPAN, or something. Uh, one of the questions on my mind is: You've seen municipalities uh, retrofit buses and other things and streetcars for natural gas, or even even uh, trash trucks, or some UPS vehicles or logistics vehicles. Why haven't you seen the automotive industry jump to that? If we had such a glut of natural gas coming out of 2008 and 2009, would it have been that difficult to kind of transition from gasoline? Yeah, there, there was some effort to have natural gas-fueled vehicles, particularly when it's thought that oil was in short supply. And if you go to other countries, if you go to India or so forth or other places, you'll see taxis or in Italy that are fueled actually by compressed natural gas. But uh, it wasn't, you know, oil prices go down, then it's not particularly uh, competitive. I think when they do it in those municipalities, it's been for kind of reasons of air, local air pollution to eliminate diesel and move to natural gas to improve local air quality because, you know, those big trucks or buses have... Uh, traditionally uh, use diesel fuel, and right. diesel would put out pollution. So that's that's what's being changed around here, is that this is immediately now, if you're a municipality bringing on a bus or a garbage truck or anything, natural gas seems to be the way to go? Uh, well, yes, it has been. Now, of course, the new push mm -hmm. is going to be, can you, can you move these heavy vehicles with a battery? Can you turn them into electric vehicles? And that is still in the very early stages. Mm. Talk to me about nuclear uh, quickly, if you will. All of this stuff in the shadow of the uh, Fukushima disaster in early 2011 in Japan. You had all of these breathless covers at a time when oil prices were soaring in the late aughts about the, the supposed renaissance of nuclear. Uh, the, remember that the original dream of atomic power was so cheap that you wouldn't even meter it. And then uh, the unthinkable happened again. We thought Chernobyl and Three Mile Island and all that were past us, but in fact, you had a, a quite a cataclysm in Japan. Right, Fukushima really marked a decisive point 
because mm. in Germany, Chancellor Merkel, who had been a big proponent of uh, nuclear power, said, let's shut them down. And Germany's uh, by 2022, will have all its nuclear sure. power shut down. Now, nuclear is about 20% of our electricity. It happens mm. to be zero carbon. In some parts of the country, it's having trouble competing against cheap natural gas. And there's been the opposition, you know, historic opposition to nuclear power. But it's an important uh, element in our total uh, energy supply. Uh, I think that uh, what people will be surprised to know is though no one is going to start building a new conventional, you know, design nuclear power plant of the kind that uh, has been built in the past. But there are over 60 private sector ventures working to see if they can come up with a new nuclear power design that would be competitive, would not have the same issues, would not be subject to the same big cost overruns that have uh, uh, hobbled even to, uh, the couple of recent nuclear power projects in the United States. Meanwhile, however, in other parts of the world, nuclear goes on. Uh, Abu Dhabi is opening four nuclear reactors. Uh, China is has built more nuclear reactors uh, than existed in Germany before Germany shut it down. So other parts of the world are still moving ahead with nuclear power. Uh, Daniel Jurgen, I am fascinated, like others, by the story, uh, the tale, the Rorschach, that is Mohammed bin Salman, the nominal ruler of Saudi Arabia, now that his father, the king, is seemingly incapacitated. Everybody thought it was a true new era when he was here in the United States, what was it, three, four years ago, touring New York, touring Silicon Valley in a suit, uh, you know, very, very kind of a new economy look, enlightened look. Uh, shaking hands with Mike Bloomberg, well, uh, talking yeah, Mike, about Mike, we work Mike and other Bloomberg, things. Mike, Mike Bloomberg took him out to Starbucks, bought him a cup of coffee. Yes, and I just remember that photo op thing and thinking, wow, are these guys pursuing a new era? You thought about normalcy, women being able to go to movies, women being able to drive in Riyadh. And then the execution of Jamal Khashoggi, the uh, the, the critic of the on and off critic of the regime who was an opinion writer for the Washington Post. I have to ask you what from a from a rational perspective, what was gained in doing that? Because certainly a lot was lost. Suddenly uh, this source of money in the Gulf region becomes a toxic person. Nobody wants to be seen in Saudi Arabia at a conference. Nobody wants to be taking his investments. Well, I think it's the question that you're raising is what were they thinking that this would uh, quietly that they would make it that it would just look like he had just disappeared and no one would know that. What they didn't know, of course, was that the they thought that there were no bugging equipment in the uh, consulate in Istanbul, but the Turks were bugging it. The Turks had probably recognized why are 16 people from security services of Saudi Arabia suddenly uh, quietly flying into uh, Istanbul without uh, announcing themselves what's going on here. And I think the larger context is the struggle for influence in the Middle East, which is a, th a tripartite struggle between Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and Iran. Because what the Turks did is that they just drip by drip left let out the recording so that each statement that came from Saudi Arabia was undercut by the next state, the next recording and the next recording. And so at the end of the day, uh, whatever the Saudis thought, uh, you know, perpetrated this, what they were going to accomplish, uh, the cost of it had been very high in the in the way that uh, that you see. It could be the most expensive, costly assassination in in history if you think about it, because of you you think about Aramco, you think about their difficulties in. IPOing afterwards, you think about, uh, you know, suddenly he's not a person who can come in and talk at think tanks in the United States. That that welcome has kind of been worn out. And looking ahead to an administration potentially that might be less receptive to his overtures or less likely to uh, believe their denials. Well, I think uh, you know it's the um, Trump administration has obviously had a very friendly relationship with the Saudis, uh, uh, with Mohammed bin Salman. I think that if there's a democratic administration, uh, there'll be differences both towards Saudi Arabia and probably towards Iran uh, in terms of trying to uh, resuscitate the uh, nuclear deal that, uh, that Donald Trump uh, deep-sixed. 
Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Daniel Jurgen, Pulitzer Prize winner. His new book is The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. Of course, uh, no shortage of praise for the prize, the epic quest for oil, money, and power. Um, that book is is talked about so much. And to think that you have so much fodder, I mean, it, all the things that have changed just in 2020 alone, I'm thinking back to uh, the uh, military ruler of, of Iran getting struck down by yes. uh, U.S. strike, right, which was supposed to start a World War III. It didn't charge. It didn't cause an oil crisis by itself. There was this, I, I, I forget, it was the, the Saudis had an oil installation, I think, attacked by a, Iran. Abcake, yes. They, they, first, they tried to, the Iranians tried to say that the uh, Houthi rebels in Yemen had struck it. But of course, it wasn't. It it, it required the technical sophistication. Now, would of would these not have been cataclysmic headlines back in the day that would have sent oil up twenty dollars a barrel overnight? Yes, it was quite striking. This was actually the largest single disruption of oil supplies, but it didn't last very long. Uh, the Saudis were able to bring back the field despite the destruction. And I have a great picture of it in, in the book of, of the fires. But I think, the, I think the reason goes back to what you were saying before, Robin. It has to do with the U.S. shale had transformed the world oil market and changed the sense of uh, security, that uh, it's added to security. If this had happened in the old days, it would have been panic. But now it's sort of what was most striking was how quickly it passed. Mm. What is the source of the animus? What is the, the the kernel, the grain of the kernel, the beef between Riyadh and Tehran? I mean, for the longest time, they at least kept it together for, for OPEC's sake. But things have, have markedly changed over the past five or six years where I think their their animosity toward one another is kind of laid bare for the rest of the world to witness. Well, and I think, Robin, you, of course, you would be pretty expert on this and would, would know the answers too. But part of it, of course, is the Sunni-Shia rivalry, the struggle for predominance, uh, this view that Iran is a revolutionary power and that it is seeking to create, uh, uh, dominate uh, the region. I think the Saudis, the United Arab Emirates believe that uh, Iran has a strategy to encircle them, uh, dominate Iraq, dominate Syria, dominate Lebanon, dominate Yemen, and uh, and bring their states to to an end. So, uh, I, you know, I would say that you know Iran is a you know still a revolutionary state. That's its identity. Uh, it still uh, rails against all of these regimes, and uh, and you know, and I think it's a real struggle for who's going to be the, the the leader in the region, and it's a very deadly struggle. Now, Iran has been a beneficiary of, of kind of the geopolitical turmoil uh, in the Middle East over the past 18 to 20 years. You think about Iraq, which was once squarely antipodal Saddam Hussein versus the Ayatollahs. Now it's, a, it's an extension of the Shiite influence of power. Uh, if you think about Syria, which is a borderline proxy regime that's very dependent and, and simpatico with Iran, is that what, what threatens the likes of Saudi Arabia and the other Arab kingdom nations so much? Yeah, and I think add to that also threatened by that is Israel. So in you know I've divided the book into I call it maps and the middle maps mm. of the Middle East going back to really uh, the First World War and the unsettled borders among those countries. Uh, but uh, and it does it, there is this you know people talk about the Shiite belt, but the Assad regime really depends upon Iran for its survival. Uh, the struggle in Lebanon, Hezbollah, which is considered a great victory for Iran. Uh, and of course, Iraq, where uh, Iranian influence is very strong, although there's been popular opposition, even in the Shiite parts of Iraq against it. Uh, but, uh, you know, as you mentioned before, uh, General Soleimani, who was killed last January uh, by a U.S. drone, was leader of uh, the Quds Force, uh, which is the international arm of the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guards. And uh, he, many saw him as the mastermind of much of what was happening in the Middle East. Hmm. I'd love to get your talk, uh, your, your thoughts actually on the uh, EV revolution that we're being told about. Uh, certainly Tesla might be the most talked about stock in the United States market in 2020 uh, against all odds, it has a what a five six hundred percent increase. It's worth about three hundred and thirty billion dollars. If you consider that 
uh, electric only vehicles are a tiny, tiny sliver of the entire global automobile market. And Tesla is the most valuable car maker in the world. What is that telling us? Exactly. So if you look at the U.S. car market, there are only 350,000 EVs that were sold in the U.S. out of a market, 16, 17 million. But um, I mean, Tesla is not only a car and electric vehicle, it's a brand. And uh, it's, you know, it's exciting. It's cool. It's new. And uh, and Elon Musk is an extraordinary figure, whether it's that or it's SpaceX in terms of doing what people think is impossible. SpaceX, he's competed, a, created a competitor to, to NASA in terms of launching satellites uh, and into space. Uh, I have a, a chapter on the EV in the book. Sure. And I, and I had a lot of time talking with the chief technology officer uh, of it, who was a, you know, really a kid from Stanford, who was just was obsessed with electric cars. And the story of how they did it, you know, this crazy idea that started over a fish restaurant lunch in Los Angeles. Where <laughs> first, they, first, they tried to sell Elon Musk, he and another person on doing electric airplanes said, I'm not interested in that. But they, then he talked about electric cars. And he said, I might be interested in that. And he, you know, funded it, got it going, was the driving force. But this chief technology officer was uh, J.B. Straubel is quite incredible describing how they just innovated like crazy. And you just say, this couldn't have happened anywhere else other than Silicon Valley because you just didn't have that kind of community. It's not something that could have been done in a big company. And they did it fast. And they, you know, they ran into big problems. They overcame them. They ran into big problems. They overcame them. And he describes, you know, how they needed to, you know, test batteries. And normally you do it on a track. It'd be millions of dollars. They didn't do that. So they hired a crane and just practiced dropping batteries to see what happened when they dropped them. And so it's an incredible story of entrepreneurship and innovation, and it's clearly captured the imagination. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, it's not about EVs, it's about Teslas. So there's been more than a hundred year, uh, you call it an ecosystem, a familiar ecosystem. I think it's a codependency between oil and autos, right? Uh, Detroit and the the patch and, and gasoline and the internal combustion engine. Uh, how much should the oil players, whether you're Aramco, whether you're Exxon, whether you're Petronations, be terrified by the prospect of a very quickly ramping up uh, market for EVs? Suppose that becomes the industry standard. Well, yeah, it's not a question. It's a question of whether you can quickly ramp up because of scale and everything like that. And uh, and by the way. It turns out that the average car in the U.S. stays on the road for 12 years. So, but but let's say that happens. Uh, you know, they would be. You know, it would be concerning. It would challenge. You know, what's seen as the market. And the numbers I have in the book, we, you know, the scenarios we do is that there are about 1.4 billion cars in the world today. By 2050, there'll be about 2 billion, and maybe 600 million of them will be EVs. But that means still 1.3, 1.4 will still run on gasoline, but they'll be more efficient. They'll be hybrids. Uh, but uh, autos are about, this will surprise you, Robin. I think it'll surprise many people. One thinks of oil, well, first of all, your codependency, that's absolutely right about gasoline and uh, the internal combustion engine. Before the internal combustion engine came along, gasoline sold for about as a waste product for about two cents a gallon. And in 1900, there were more electric vehicles on the road in New York City than gasoline-powered cars, but that changed pretty quickly. Uh, but what people tend to do is think that oil is just about cars. That's only about 20% of world oil demand, just cars. Oil is used for a lot of other things that really surprise people, like, uh, you know, a lot of the equipment in an operating room in a hospital is uh, is made out of plastics, either from oil or natural gas. Uh, the, the tools that put a stent into somebody's heart when they have a heart condition is uh, made out of oil or natural gas plastic. Uh, even... Uh, this is, I find, think people are really surprised when they find this out. You know, many people, I'm sure many of your listeners have in their life taken this pill called Tylenol. You know Tylenol? Of course. It's an oil product. So the, it's uh, oil and natural gas are much more pervasive in our world than just transportation. But nevertheless, if you refine oil and still your number one market is gasoline, a rapid progression of electric vehicles will eat up a, a very important part of your market pretty quickly, if it happened quickly. 
If I were to take a counterfactual, just kind of a mental exercise, suppose overnight all of the vehicles in the United States are Teslas, are EVs. Is that to say that these are natural gas burning vehicles? After all, the, the power plants are fueling them, whether it's yeah. at peak or not peak times. What is the median means of production right now? Well, natural gas is by far the largest uh, source. Uh, coal is still there. Renewables are coming along, but people forget about nuclear and they forget about hydro and so forth. So, uh, you know, there's a pretty good chance that uh, the car you're driving, even an electric car, is fueled by either natural gas or coal. Daniel Jurgen, you have seen the Democratic Party uh, tout uh, either kind of a Green New Deal or Joe Biden's recently announced $2 trillion climate plan to speed what he calls the energy transition with the goal to post of emissions-free power sector by 2035, which sounds ambitious, 15 years away to have an emissions-free power sector. Um, could Democrats ban fracking? Is that even possible? Could Could you throw enough sand in the gears of the normal right now, normalcy for energy production in the United States to kind of turn the tide of, of carbon emissions within 15 years? Well, Joe Biden the other day in Pittsburgh said, I'm not going to ban fracking. Let me repeat, I'm not going to ban fracking. But there's a lot of pressure on him to do that. I'm not sure that he has a legal authority to ban fracking. But your point about sand in the gears is the right way because you can do an awful lot with regulation to make it much more difficult. I mean, he said, you know, no leasing on federal lands. You know, a lot of the, I mean, people don't know that the Western United States, the federal government owns those 13 Western states, like 48% of the land. Not all of it is the Grand Canyon, you know, beautiful Yellowstone Natural Park. A lot of it is just land. And uh, it's traditionally been, for instance, in New Mexico where they, where they drill on it, and by the way, provides funding for New Mexico schools and so forth in terms of royalties. So I think they could throw sand into the gears. But the thing I keep scratching my head about is, why do you want to ban it? Because then if you ban it, uh, the biggest beneficiaries will probably be Saudi Arabia and Russia, because you're going to create a gap that's no longer filled by the United States. There are 280 million cars, you know, you're not going to eliminate you know, all running on gasoline, they're not going to start running on something else. So you're going to have to import more oil again. And where's it? And so who's going to benefit from the gap? Saudi Arabia and Russia. And I think that that thought connection, I mean, it's a very popular slogan, but it's not, you know, you get behind it. Well, what are you actually saying? What do you want actually to happen? If you ban it, the oil is just going to come from somewhere else. Would you rather import it from Venezuela? Is that what you're really advocating? Hmm. I was blown away in your book at looking at the statistics on on clean tech and just the uh, the, the unbelievable quietly unbelievable decade that they had. Um, you note that the cost of solar panels came down an extraordinary eighty five percent between twenty ten and twenty nineteen, driven mainly by Chinese manufacturing and massive capacity and by technological improvements. And you also noted that as late as two thousand and six, China had barely a walk on role in the photovoltaics production. Uh, let's talk about wind. Uh, <laughs> its real growth has only been in this century. In 2000, just 17 gigawatts of wind capacity had been deployed worldwide. By 2019, it had grown to 618 gigawatts. Over 40% of total installed wind capacity is in Asia, with three quarters of that in China. We were always led to believe that China is just the voracious consumer of anything coal, that it's it's bringing on coal-fired power plants online every week. But it turns out that they are omnivorous, that they'll take solar, that they'll take wind. They'll take anything you can provide them because it seems like they're just banking for a future of massive continued growth. Right. If, uh, if you look at China, uh, they are now half the wind capacity in the world, half the solar capacity in the world is in China. Uh, at the same time, China's building three new coal-fired plants a month. So as you say, it's everything for, you know, for their growing economy that they're, they're, they're doing that. But I talk about the shale revolution, the new map, but certainly there's been a solar revolution, solar cost revolution, and the cost of wind has come down too. And you know, if you think about it, both those industries are really about a half century old right now, but it was only about 10 years ago, eight years ago, when they really started to get traction to get to get to scale and bring down their costs. So, you know, that's why the energy mix has become more competitive. 
Uh, what can China tell us in that I, I, I don't believe they've had a hard landing? I've asked other guests. We've had Jim Chanos, the, the China skeptic hedge fund manager, on. What happens when and if China has its hard landing? I mean, you saw a little hint of what happened to crude oil uh, at the end of 1998 when all these emerging economies blew up and crude fell to something like $10 or $9 a barrel. Have we seen uh, a, a period of kind of... Uh, China humbled in the post-WTO, post-2001 period, and what the effects would be on the global crude oil market. You know, I have in the area, the section of the book I call the China map, yeah. is really about this uh, rising tension between China and the United States. And Robin, my first book was about the old origins of the Cold War between Russia, Soviet Union, and the United States. And I didn't really expect that I would be writing another book uh, partly about an emerging new Cold War, but it does look like we're moving into a different kind of Cold War with China than Russia. Many differences. The the Soviet-American Cold War was mainly about nuclear weapons. Here, China and Soviet Union was hardly not an important factor in the world economy. Here, China, of course, is deeply embedded in the world economy. And you have people, leaders of other countries saying, don't make us choose between uh, the two of them. And as I was writing the book, I think, Robin, you, you'll know this from your own work, I think a turning point was the 2008 financial crisis, because until then, it was the U.S. that was the model that told other people how to run their economies. And then this global crisis that seemed to portend a Great Depression blows up at the heart of the U.S. economy. And it meant that we couldn't so easily go around the world telling other people how to run their economies. And what was the first economy to recover? China. Yeah. China and and China led the world really. China pulled. China was the engine that helped pull the world out of the uh, out of that crisis. And you look back at what the Chinese say. They say that was a turning point for them in in their attitudes. So I think um, you know they were not humbled, but rather moved into a more preeminent position than they had been. And we've just seen now China's export industries are booming now because of the coronavirus affecting other countries. So, you know, they've, they've come, seem to have come close to hard landings. Uh, you know, they have a lot of debt uh, in their sectors, a lot of old overbuilding of industrial equipment and so forth, which may be one reason that they're promoting this Belt and Road uh, strategy that they had to create markets outside China. But I don't think, uh, you know, you've had yeah, James Chanos, and he's been a, you know, very acute observer. But I don't think we've... I don't know what he said, but I don't think we've seen uh, that hard landing. But, you know, people keep, I mean, the other thing that's out there, I suppose, for China, which I talk about is that, you know, I have a line in the book, no country has ever gone gray so fast. Their population is really aging fast because of the one child rule. And uh, that means you're going to have, you're not going to have a kind of young productive workforce as you have in the other supergiant, which is India. Hmm. What about the here and now with Saudi Arabia? You saw them uh, engage in a price war earlier this year, which kind of precipitated the events, as you illustrated in the book, with tankers idling all across uh, the oceans. W w they seem to have the lowest break-even price of any producer on the planet. It has been alleged that it cost them maybe you know, $5, uh, take out budgetary concerns, to extract this stuff from the ground. So they have a very high pain threshold if, if Brent... Or, or light sweet were to fall to twenty dollars a barrel, it's much easier for them to tolerate that than it is a Venezuela or it is some of these marginal producers or, you know, the 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 or the tar sand producers up in the, oh, the oh, northwest. Oh, 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 oil sands, oil sands. <laughs> yeah, oil sands. <laughs> technical. Yeah. Term. So what what right now do they are they are they chiefly interested strategically in snuffing out the oil patch in the United States, the shale patch, snuffing you know. Uh, slowing it down, retarding its progress, or are they content to live with that? I'm, I'm trying to get that into the head of MBS, just from a pure oil perspective. Well, as, as near as I can tell, the Saudis came to a view earlier that shale was going to be part of the system. I think it's the Russians who have been actually more hostile to it because they were saying, why should we give up market share to the United States? And they began to see shale as an adjunct to U.S. foreign policy. So, but I think the Saudis, you know, every time oil price goes down, they would always talk, we got to diversify our economy. 
and I quote one of their senior officials said, we talked about it all the time, but we never succeeded. I think, you know, part of the panache of, uh, of uh, MBS was coming in and saying, you know, we've got to really make big changes here. 70% of our workforce, our population is under 30 or 35, and we've got to create jobs. And so he launched this vision 2030 to diversify the economy. I think the, uh, what the, what's becoming apparent, it's not easy to diversify an economy and change your culture and investment. And secondly, uh, actually, if you want to get away from oil, you need oil to fund the get away from oil. And so uh, they're going to be a player. And I think that they see the energy transition that, you know, will be a shift. They have to prepare for it. But they, going back to what you said, they're the lowest, you know, just about the lowest cost, cost producer. So they see themselves as uh, when other people fold their tent, they'll still be there and uh, still be supplying. Just a quick uh, cul-de-sac with you. Tell us about Norway. Uh, Norway seems to be the exception to the rule. It, it took the kind of the windfall of this blessing and this curse of, of oil and parlayed it into a sovereign wealth fund and, and income distribution and uh, uh, investments in, in longer-lasting uh, kind of more heartfelt gains for their population. Well, I mean, I think you need to, I mean, obviously Norway started with this sort of uh, kind of, even though they have conservatives in power and not a socialist, sort of a social democratic sense of uh, solidarity. Uh, they were already a diversified economy when, uh, when everybody said it wasn't possible, they discovered oil and became a very rich country. You mentioned their sovereign wealth fund. It is not just a sovereign wealth fund. It is the world's largest sovereign wealth fund, over True. a trillion dollars. So enormous impact on global markets uh, everywhere. And uh, they took the oil money and they said, let's save it for future generations. There are only about 4 million people, I think, in, in Norway. So that's a lot of savings for, you know, them and their descendants. Uh, but they, you know, and I, I remember Jan Stoltenberg, who's now the head of NATO, Secretary General, but he was the energy minister and then the prime minister, and was very concerned about not not just having the money wash across the economy and basically ruin it by, but so that they really wanted to, as I said, sterilize it, move it into this sovereign wealth fund. And they've been, you know, they're the role model for how to do it right. And it's worked out for them. Uh, their state oil company called Statoil changed its name now to Equinor. And in kind of the mood of the times is saying, we're not just an oil and gas company. We want to be an energy company too. So they now are not doing, not only doing, offshore oil, they're also doing offshore wind. Mm. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Daniel Jurgen. He is the author of The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. Of course, you know him for uh, the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Prize, The Epic Quest for Oil, Money, and Power. He also wrote The Quest. Uh, sir, on climate, uh, I'm thinking about 2020, and uh, I don't know what kind of grade you would give global powers, both emerging and developed, on coordination around this global pandemic. But it, it doesn't seem to bode well for the necessary coordination on cutting carbon emissions that we're going to need over the next 20 years. Well, first of all, I think uh, it would not be a very good grade on uh, global coordination on this pandemic. Uh, by any, by, In fact, uh, it's probably made it worse. It's it's fed into the rising geopolitical tensions between the U.S. and China. It's kind of made the situation even worse. Uh, and, you know, we used to, you know, it was the U.S. Uh, uh, Center for Disease Control, CDC, that actually set up the Chinese Center for Disease Control. And now these links have been broken. And, you know, scientific cooperation is now very much under the scrutiny of uh, geopolitical tensions. So I think you would say in general, it's not been a very good grade and uh, the world has paid the price for it. Uh, but on climate, I, uh, in the, what I call the climate map, I, I divide the eras in two, before Paris and after Paris. And Paris means the 2015 climate conference in November and December of 2015, which said, let's try and prevent uh, global temperatures from rising two degrees from pre-industrial levels. And 195 nations signed on to that. And it really is a global consensus or a global benchmark. And now 
investors, financial investors are saying to companies, tell us what your corporate strategies are, how they fit with the Paris objectives. And you look at the language, I was just looking at it this morning of, of uh, the uh, president of the uh, European uh, uh, Union, uh, and she describes, says, you know, we're going to be net zero carbon by 2050. Uh, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of Britain, says we're going to be net zero carbon by 2050. And alluding to what you're talking about before, Joe Biden says that in his program. So I think there's a lot of um, uh, a lot of kind of coordination, dialogue, uh, activity around that. If you have a Biden presidency, it will increase. How difficult is it going to be to get to 2050 and whether the governments will have the financial resources after all the money they've spent on COVID to put into an energy transition. We'll have to see when this when this is all over. But I think there's been, um, you know, I think it, if you just kind of look at it in terms of global mobilization, the kind of uh, gathering around that objective, you know, it's pretty striking. And it's hard to think of very many other things where you had not only... Uh, you know, Britain and Norway signing on, but so did Syria. What happens, though, when you get down to the nitty gritty of, and the Trump administration has been pretty outspoken about this, that uh, different economies should not be able to get a, a pass? I mean, if you're India, if you're Brazil and others, why do you get on balance to pollute more per capita? And yet a lot of these countries will, will punch back and they'll say, well, you had the 20th century to uh, go through all of your ordeals and smog and, and, and learning the hard way and, and factory issues and the EPA and Superfund sites, uh, we too are developing and we should get uh, we should be graded on a curve. It seems to come to that sort of tension every time you have something like a Paris Accord. I think that the um, that has been the case. I think in uh, 2014, Barack Obama went to Beijing and with Xi Jinping stood in the Great Hall and agreed together on sort of climate targets. There were different climate targets for the United States, carbon targets than for China, and they reflected exactly what you've said. You know, you guys have been polluting for a long time. Okay, you're going to do it. We still need to continue doing it because we're still a developing country, a poor country. But at least there was a kind of narrowing on that. And I think that, you know, you summarized the two sides uh, very clearly. I have some very good graphics in the new map about uh about carbon and uh, climate. And you look at it and you see that right now, China puts out about twice as much uh, CO2 as the United States does. Uh, and, uh, and then you see like what Europe does and you sort of say, well, Europe, is it worth, are they, is that where they should be spending their money or should they be giving their money to China and India? If you really, because, you know, the, the, the CO2 doesn't respect national boundaries. Uh, maybe you should put it where, where the where the most amount of CO2 is coming out. But I think uh, people are generally pretty inward looking. And the money that was promised at Paris for developing countries to help them, I don't believe has eventuated. When you get down to brass tax, is it going to come to pricing carbon, penalizing carbon, whether you securitize that or you're trading that or make it fungible, that there has to be a price attached to carbon? It can't just be an externality or an offshoot of, of economic activity? Well, or, or or regulation. I notice in the in the Biden climate plan, uh, he uses the phrase enforcement mechanism uh, a fair amount, a striking phrase. Uh, but I think maybe because they don't want to talk about a price on carbon. Uh, I did a book uh, several years ago called Commanding Heights, the Battle for the World Economy about governments, states and markets. And it left me, you know, the experience of working on that for a few years left me with a lot of respect for markets and, and the power of price to send a message. And so it would seem to me if you could work out a carbon price of some kind that that would, you know, and then let people figure out how to do it and let in innovation incentives rather than trying to regulate into happening. Uh, you know, some people say, well, oh, it's going to be easier to get a carbon tax in the United States now because we're going to need new revenues. Uh, you know, maybe, but a carbon tax can also be regressive, fall around low income people more. So, you know, I, uh, you know, we're probably in the next administration, if it's the Biden administration, will be one of rising taxes. And, uh, you know, Robin, I think your point is that uh, carbon tax, given the, shall we say, the constellation of political forces, will have more um, 
a bigger shot this time than it did in the past. Why is it that before I read your book, I was under the impression that overwhelmingly it must have been automobiles that present represent the lion's share of global CO2 emissions? And yet I read the book and was stunned to see that it's actually about 42% electricity and heat, another 24% is industry. So you're telling me north of two-thirds of global CO2 emissions are our electricity, heat, and industry, and cars and light trucks are just 11%. So if you're going to move one needle, if you're going to pull one lever... And if you just take cars, I think it's around 6%. So, you know, it does help. I, that's what I hope people will look at those charts, because it does help to actually know what the numbers are and, you know, kind of where should you put your effort? And, uh, you know, we could put a lot of effort into cars, and so we might get it down from 6 to 3% of CO2. But, you know... is is that going to move the needle? So I guess I guess the you know they say you should you should uh, skate to where the puck is. Maybe you, you should you go should go to where the needle is, where you can have the bigger impact. What are we learning from this office of the future concept? That you know Zoom at one point uh, in this tech stock boom was worth more than IBM, and everybody seems to be telecommuting. My kids are on Zoom school. Uh, we seem to have had a tipping point where we realize you don't have to hop. Uh, a flight uh, from New York to LA for a meeting. You can, in fact, do these things remotely, and the technology is only going to improve. Um, could this actually put a dent into uh, transportation emissions? Yeah, I think uh, into transportation emissions, and I think uh, it's a big hit for airlines, which, you know, for their revenues have depended so much upon uh, the business traveler. And now you find, well, you know, it would be good to sit down and have a meal with people and get to know them in some other part of the world. On the other hand, you could go to four different parts of the world uh, in a single day without leave, leaving your, your, you know, your, your workroom or your, or your dining room table where you set up your, your computer. Uh, so I think uh, coming out of this, this question about commuting, about traveling, about the nature of work, that's going to be, you know, where we'll be see big changes coming from uh uh, COVID, or at least we'll watch, do people want to, how quickly do people want to get back into the offices and see other people? Or will we just be more accustomed to a virtual world? Uh, you know, you could say that six years of digitalization has been, uh, and of technological advance has been crammed into six months by the force of uh, requirements. I think a lot of people six months ago had never heard of Zoom. And yet now it's, uh, it is, it's turned, it's so prevalent, it's turned into a verb. <laughs> and to that end, I, I do wonder, thinking back to say where my head was in 93 and 94, that the World Wide Web came out of nowhere and it caused enormous gains in productivity and innovation and, and Silicon Valley's massive uh, decades of boom. You had companies like Amazon and Salesforce birthed out of it, Google. You know, Apple gets a second lease on life. Do you ever, at night, when you kind of close your eyes and you go to bed, do you ever wonder if if there's any sort of silver bullet technology that can just enter the equation? I don't know whether it's a, a cold fusion type thing or such a, a quantum leap in solar or wind that it immediately and rapidly puts a dent into our global energy infrastructure and, by extension, CO2 emissions? We did a study, I did it with uh, Ernie Moniz, the former energy secretary for something called the Breakthrough Energy Coalition and Bill Gates Foundation, on what technologies are not there that you need to, uh, you know, to meet these climate goals. And it's a pretty long list. And at least most of them are things that won't happen overnight. I mean, we need, you know, for instance, if we had really large scale competitive grid storage of electricity, that would change the prospects for, re, for, for renewable energy by changing it from being intermittent to being something that, you know, you could store it, uh, like you can store oil in tanks, gasoline in, in tanks. Uh, so there are a whole list of them, and you can make a list of them. You do wonder, I mean, you always wonder what's going to come from left field that you just don't see now. Is it something that would come from sort of... Uh, some think that the next breakthroughs will come from a merger of engineering with biology uh, in ways that maybe we just aren't seeing right now. So, and that, that you know, that, that could be the surprise. I do think, um, toward, in the conclusion of, uh, of the new map, I have a list of kind of all the surprise, not all the some of the surprises since yes. 2001. And it's a, you know, it's a long list. And even, let's take this pandemic, you know, why, why did it come as such a surprise? 
uh, I, I, in the chapter, the play chapter, I offer one reason is because uh, we hadn't seen anything like this since the great the Spanish flu epidemic, and that had been sort of suppressed at the time because of World War One. I. I mean, probably Woodrow Wilson had the Spanish flu initially; he didn't have a stroke, but uh, but mm. you know, but but people didn't realize the full extent of it. And I have, you know, a very specific thing that the last really well-known pandemic was a SARS one in Asia uh, in 2002, 2003. And, you know, at the, you know, you say, well, God, that must have been really bad. Well, a little over 8,000 people got sick and a little under 800 passed away from it. And so I think when this first came, people just sort of thought, oh, this is another SARS epidemic. It's sort of over there in China and didn't realize what we were in for, unless you were a specialist and knew the field. So that's not directly to your question, but I think think we should always be prepared to be surprised and uh, and actually to work with scenarios and think the unthinkable because sometimes the unthinkable not only becomes thinkable, but it actually happens. And in closing, I have to ask you, I think I hear a lawnmower or something buzzing yes. behind you, which makes me think about your home life. And have you considered going off the grid? I mean, are, are, you, are you thinking about putting these newfangled solar panels on your roof? There are all these new financing schemes. You could get a Tesla wall pack battery. Uh, there seems to be increasing chatter about people wanting to leave the grid and, and determine, you know, have, have energy self-determination. And increasingly, if if neighborhoods do this, it could be disruptive to the entire industry. Well, we have put in a, uh, a home generator uh, to deal with backups when the power gets disrupted. We haven't uh, 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 put solar panels uh, on the roof. Uh, we do look at our electricity bill very carefully. Uh, but uh, I, I notice now that the the phrase off the grid entered my own vocabulary. I was, uh, some colleagues wanted me to, uh, at IHS Market, where I work, wanted me to read a paper that they've written about the battles over natural gas in Europe, and I missed it uh, for several days, and I explained to them that I personally was off the grid. So uh, uh, we haven't gone off the grid, but I think it's a useful concept when you just actually, you know, one of the features, Robin, of this new world in which we're in is that you can work all the time because there's no boundary between home and office. Uh, it's, and so sometimes just for your own sanity, you've got to go off the grid and uh, use that time to reflect and to think. And so, uh, but uh, so, uh, you know, we're all at kind of adjusting and learning about a new world and we'll find out when this, uh, this crisis is over, uh, how much the world has really changed. Daniel Jurgen, Vice Chairman of IHS Market. He is a board member of the Council on Foreign Relations, a senior trustee of the Brookings Institution, and you've served on the Secretary of Energy Advisory Board under the last four presidents. The book is, and I really enjoyed it, The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. Thank you so much, Mr. Jurgen. You are always welcome on this show. Well, Robin, thank you for a terrific discussion. I'm very glad to join you today. Full disclosure, our engineer this week is John Valentine. Special thanks to Penguin Press. Enjoy this show on Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. And please rate us and write me. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week. Thank you.